Hello and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And today on the program, we're joined by Valerie Clayman Pye. Hello, Valerie. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Garrett and Jim. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. Valerie Clayman Pye is an assistant professor of theater at Long Island University Post, where she teaches acting and voice and speech. Valerie holds a PhD in performance practice, drama, and an MFA in staging Shakespeare from the University of Exeter, where she worked with Shakespeare's Globe and the Royal Shakespeare Company. She also holds an MFA in acting from Brooklyn College and is a professional actor and director who has worked throughout the United States and abroad. Valerie's book, Unearthing Shakespeare, Embodied Performance, and the Globe, has recently been released by Rutledge. This year, as a matter of fact, correct? Yes, that's correct. Just just hit the shelves. Just hit the shelves. Well, that must be very exciting. Is this your first book? It is very exciting. This is my first book on my own, and I've had, you know, a chapter in other places, but this is my first solo endeavor, and it's, it's, you know... So exciting to see it out in the world. First of all, let's start with the inspiration for Unearthing Shakespeare. What was that? Well, that goes all the way back to the first time that I was I ever visited the Globe, which was back in 1998 when I was an actor training at Lambda. And when I first went to the Globe, I found that it was unlike any other space I had ever encountered. It felt to me as though... The theater itself was a, was a character in the performance, and the dynamics there were so unlike anything I had ever experienced. And it made me look at Shakespeare and performance as a whole in, in a completely new way. And way back then, which is hard to believe, it's, you know, 19 years now, but it began this question within me about why performance there was so different and in turn what we could do about performance elsewhere taking inspiration from that space when you say that the performance there is different what do you mean what's particular to to that space <laughs> well you know i mean there's so many things that are different one is that the audience and the actors are in the shared light of day or in the simulation of that in the evening so there is no fourth wall the audience is very active they're actively a part of the performance partly because they're up on their feet if they're groundlings, but also because there's direct address between the performers and the audience. And the the theater itself, I find, really is a little bit... It's a microcosm within a macrocosm. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's called the globe, and it, it really is a placeholder for the world. And when you look at the Elizabethan theater and that particular stage... You have the heavens above you, you have hell below you, and what you see on stage is really what's happening in the world. And that's very unlike any other space that you find uh, if you just were to go into, for example, a proscenium arch space. And, you know, very, very often, although that's changing, but very often Shakespeare is performed in these other stages that are really inspired and informed by realism and naturalism, which didn't exist at the time that Shakespeare was writing. And so having an opportunity to look at what the intersections are between the text that he's writing 
and those performance conditions, and then trying to extract from that what can work in alternate spaces, that really inspired me. And that's where my work is, is based. So modern day audiences are used to being in the dark and the audience pretends that they aren't there. And mm-hmm. the actors who are on stage are pretending also that the audience isn't there. But when yeah. you when you go and see a show <laughs> at Shakespeare's Globe, it's it's very different, isn't it? The fourth wall, as you say, is is removed, or or maybe removed isn't the right word. It's it, it's non-existent. It is non-existent, and because of that, the audience is completely integrated into the action. So the They're audience com- is part of the storytelling. They are. They are. And you know, if we look at at for example, the prologue to Henry V, right? Oh, for a muse of fire. We look at that and, and the chorus comes out and makes an agreement with the audience, right? And says, basically, I wish I had this incredible thing, this incredible power to transform this space around us, but we're in this together and we can make this story happen. And so as that moves forward into parceling out what the different roles are, the audience is completely drawn into the action. You know, let us on your imaginary forces work, right? That it has to be something that you are doing with us. And that's completely different from from what we've grown to expect today, where, like you said, you the audience comes in and and we expect to see this drama unfold. And we're anonymously looking in as though we're a voyeur. And that just didn't exist. And when you look at the text and the plays and look at them in performance, it's very difficult, I find, to perform the plays as though the audience is not there because they're not written that way. So this way, this presentational style, this interactive style is really central to your whole philosophy of of preparing, uh, rehearsing, and performing Shakespeare. It is. It is. And I find that when you give actors permission to collaborate with the audience, it's incredibly rewarding. It makes the entire text come alive. And that really excites me. And that captures that essence of what I experienced back in in the Globe the first time I was there. So I'm really interested in, in this direct address idea and the interaction with the audience. Uh, in your research for the book, did you discover any places in the scripts of Shakespeare that were unexpected in their direct address? I mean, we all know asides and soliloquies, but any place else? Well, you know, I categorize those moments of direct address in, in different ways that I encourage the actor to cast the audience. Um, in a particular role, so casting them either as a confidant or casting them as a co-conspirator where they become complicit in the action. But all of these elements begin to infuse and inform one another. So when you're asking me that, the first thing I think about actually has to do with the space. And so I might have to come back around to it. But, you know, I think about Romeo's famous text with two of the fairest stars in all the heavens having some business to entreat her eyes to twinkle in their spheres till they return. What if her eyes were there, they in her head, right? That little section. The actor playing Romeo in the Elizabethan theater at the Globe, for example, would have been standing under the painted heavens, would have had those stars right there. So, you know, this is a a place where an actor in a proscenium art with a realistic set or in that kind of staging suddenly is met 
with this kind of really heightened poetry that seems to come out literally out of thin air, mm -hmm. as opposed to being informed by what the actor would have actually had right there in the shared space with the audience. And so that's, a, I love that example because it shows how even if you're in an alternate space, you know, even if you're in a realistic set, even if you're in a theater completely unlike the globe, knowing that that could have been the connection gives an actor in any space an ability to, to really clearly make a point about the relationship to the other actor character on stage, as well as drawing the audience into that world so that it doesn't become amusing about, you know, some kind of poetic philosophy, but mm -hmm. instead it's something really tangible. And that I find incredibly exciting. It really explodes the whole idea of soliloquy. It does. It does. It completely does. And do you know what? It, it's so much more fun. It's so empowering to have all of that information. And, you know, I, I, I think about when you had James Shapiro on and he talked about that Shakespeare is not difficult to understand in performance, provided that the actors know what they're talking about. And I think that this is one of those moments where when you have complete command of the language and all of these creative possibilities, it just brings everything to life in a way that perhaps it lacks when we don't have all of that at our disposal. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And that's that's a double-edged sword. Seeing a production at Shakespeare's Globe, for example, in London, once you've seen the possibilities. It's really hard to imagine it being done any other way. And when you see it, when you see Shakespeare's stage with with a fourth wall, you think, "Oh, this is nice and interesting," but there's something else that's really missing yeah. here. <laughs> so, I mean, I have not seen a, a show at the Globe, but I'm interested because I have two thoughts about it. First of all, in a way, you have to retrain the audience. Yes. And the second one, which is, I guess, more pertinent, is. How do you merge the two when you are faced with staging a Shakespeare play on a proscenium theater? How do you merge the two? Mm, that's such a great question. That is such a great question. I'm so glad you asked it. <laughs> I think, you know, there's there's a couple of things. One of the things that I do is I, I train actors in what I call elliptical, the use of elliptical energy, which is another way of using the actor as, um, excuse me, using the audience as a conduit for the energy on stage. So if you think about in a fourth wall tradition, you might have two actors on stage and they are directly engaged with one another as though the audience is not present, right? We talked about that before, but, and that there might be some residual energy that spills out into the audience. If you think about opening out, or you think about remaining open to the audience visibly, there's some residual energy that does get passed through that fourth wall to the audience. But, you know, Stanislavski says that there should be direct contact between the actors on stage with minimal contact with the audience. And, you know, our, our actor training tradition is based in the West on, on the Stanislavski tradition and all of the permutations of that. One of the reasons that the book is called Unearthing Shakespeare is because I 
draw the parallel to archaeology. I feel as though we need to be archaeologists of performance, right? That we need to excavate all of that evidence that is there for us. And once we've done that, once we've kind of dug it all up and brushed all of the surface stuff aside, and we can look at what's really there, then the creative possibilities begin to happen where we can begin to think about, well, if this is the evidence that I have before me, what might that mean? And how can I how can I creatively imagine ways of using that? So that's how Unearthing Shakespeare came to be as a title. I love the idea of unearthing Shakespeare. And I think that this idea of utterly dismantling the fourth wall is something that is being done and is very familiar, certainly to people who, theater goers who have had a chance to see Shakespeare's Globe in London, but also our friends in, at the Theatricum and at Hudson Valley Shakes and at New yeah. American Shakespeare Tavern and yeah. uh, at the American Shakespeare Center. Mm-hmm. I wonder to what extent this is being rediscovered and, and to what extent this is part of a tradition of performance that has had a continuity that bridges the, the post-Stanislavski objective-oriented technique that shoved this to, to the side for the better part of the 20th century. Certainly it is happening in Shakespeare, and that's what we're talking about at the moment. But I, I also think this new emerging aesthetics that we're seeing just in 21st century theater practices in general in terms of immersive theater and you know really challenging what is theater what is theatrical what is performance those those are also being stretched and challenged and rediscovered and redefined in ways that you know it's all informing one another and i think that you know when we when stars in the future look mm. back at this period of time they'll have a clearer sense of how it how that began to change and i'm sure you know film and digital media has also informed all of these changes that are happening but you know the the fourth wall is it doesn't serve all kinds of plays and audiences and in the ways that Perhaps it did, you know, in 1950. So returning to the book, you, you mentioned the elliptical energy training in passing, yeah. but you spend some time in the book breaking that down for us. But for our listeners, what is the, the elliptical energy training? The elliptical energy training is a series of exercises that help the actors learn to work with the audience, essentially. And so they begin with using two actors working with a mirror to connect the energy, which expands their face-to-face interaction, which enables them to begin to replicate what it's like to have that face-to-face interaction that you we've grown accustomed to, but without actually being face-to-face. And so then when you say two actors working with a mirror, what, what do you mean? Like physically in space, how does that work? So it begins with two actors standing in a staggered position before a mirror so that each actor is able to directly address their partner in the mirror. So they begin and they do a series of exercises before this mirror where they first are learning to make a connection as themselves. Then we segue into using Shakespeare's text before the mirror. 
And then we remove the mirror and we use a solid surface or a wall to continue to train our awareness of being able to connect to one another without that face-to-face interaction. And then we introduce the audience and discover how we can reach our partners on stage and just as inclusively as we do when we're facing them directly, but we can also be speaking with the audience as the channel for that expanded relationship between the two actors on stage. What's interesting is that, you know, when you delve into modern American realism, the idea of being presentational is, you know, verboten. It's not a good thing. But this seems like it's sort of finding a balance between being presentational and being invested in the world of the play, but also in the world of the space that you're in. That's right. And because the audience is in the same room, right? Because for example, at Shakespeare's Globe or in the Elizabethan Theater, any of the Elizabethan theaters, you know, the same would be true if we were talking about, for example, the American Shakespeare Center and the Blackfriars Theater. It's the same thing where the audience is included in the action and they can be included in the action in any theater. We just have to make the choice to do so. But once they're included in it, right, then once you have said, okay, we are in a shared space, they are bearing witness to the actions of the play. And so they they become a character as well. And so, you know, there are reasons why so many of the soliloquies address the audience, because the audience is, is the witness. They are there. So, you know, when, for example, when Isabella in Measure for Measure, after Angelo leaves, you know, he's just basically, um, you know, she's she's gone there to plead for her brother's life, to spare his life. And he she's a novice nun. He says, well, you know, if you'll sleep with me, I will spare your brother's life, which, you know, is quite shocking even today. And he leaves and she says to the audience, to whom should I complain? Mm. Right? Because they're there. They've just seen it. She's not alone. They've just seen the whole thing unfold. And so when you have a situation like that, the audience is there. And and you can use that in so many ways to help the language come alive and help the performance come alive. And it's rewarding for the actors and it's really rewarding for the audience. Valerie Pye, thank you so much for joining us on The State of Shakespeare. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. Thank you for joining us on The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.